0: Good morning, everyone. How are you today? Well, we're past Elsa. We're not frozen in time. Shitty, 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 shitty uh, pun. But Elsa's gone. Elsa is up near above Tampa now, I guess. Something like that. And uh, I hope everyone's doing all right with that. You know, We didn't have to put the storm shutters. We're just waiting for the next one, I guess. The next storm search. This is Jim the Keys, bartender, coming to you from Key Largo. With uh, stupid-ass, lame references, I guess. Today, this morning, before the show, about 20 minutes ago, I got a knock on the door. And an elderly lady... Who was very timid because I answered the door. I guess because I'm a big man, but she stood back when I answered the door and she says, Do you have Gloria's dog? And I'm like, I don't even know who Gloria is. But uh, I assured her I don't have Gloria's dog. And she gave me a story about Gloria walking through, the, ha, having fell and hurt her hip, and she's her friend, and she lost her dog. And she said, that someone helped her out and took the dog in to their house. Which, uh, I guess I should ask a bunch of more questions. Because it sounds like, why would people have helped the lady who fell, taken her dog, got her help, and not given her back her dog? She says it's in one of the houses. So it sounds a little discombobulated. But it was in the neighborhood. I thought it was very nice. The lady started right away with the Gloria story. And I'm like, oh, I, I mean, I guess I've seen her. And she goes, oh, we've seen you before. We walked through the neighborhood with the dog. I said, oh, okay. So I th- I say, I'll keep an eye out for the dog. I said, where are house is?" And she pointed over to a street over in a general direction. I said, what's the address? She didn't really have the address. She just told me a description of the house. Uh, which I understand when you live, you have a friend in the neighborhood, and they're right not. They're, I guess the lady doesn't live right next to her, so she doesn't know exactly what her address is. But I thought it was very neighborly, and she sounded really upset. And I was trying to be calm to the lady and say, "Hey, listen, yeah, I'm sure they're going to find it. It's a tight neighborhood. No one's going to, you know, just take the dog, right?" I hope I hope that's what happened. Hope the lady's not having an episode thinking that someone, you know, imagining that someone took the dog and the dog isn't running out there. I'll just keep an eye on it. Hopefully it has a collar on it. And speaking of that, I gotta get another collar for my dog with another thing, just in case. Right? Don't want to be stuck one night without a collar for my dog. So, yeah, there should always be a backup collar. It's like having a backup key for your car. Not, not, no, the, the comparison may not work there. So, I didn't work yes. I had a wonderful day. I had to relax with my dog, really. I went to the gym and did some other things. I, I, I'm going to try to do that today. We have a work meeting in about an hour and a half at 9.30. So, I could have went to the gym super early. Then go on to the meeting, or get up a little later, go to the meeting, then go to the gym, and then try to do a podcast. And then I realize, get up early, do the podcast, go to the meet. Well, go to the bank and the post office and all the things you have to do, and then, uh, what? What do I do after that? Yep. I got to work today. So he got that. So what? how do we value our work? Go to work. What makes you go to work every day? Is it just money? Is it status? Is it something to do? Is it a basic thing you have to do? Just, I have to do it in order to live. I don't have, I need the money. So what? What do we value ourselves? Nowadays, I guess right after the pandemic, people are valuing their work a little more. Because supposedly people, a lot of service jobs aren't being filled. A lot of people that were in the service industry aren't doing that anymore. They found other jobs or they're not working at all. I don't know. Some people are very quick to make the estimation or the you know interpretation that people are receiving too many safety net income, too much safety net income, not to uh, work, unemployment. It's not that much in uh, Florida. It's 275. I think they cut off the 300. So I, people are suggesting that now, They're suggesting that they're doing gig work and they're getting unemployment, supplementing that, not taking any service jobs. Well, I've been working since, I only was out of work maybe two months at most because everything was shut down here back in early 2020. March to uh, mid-March to early May and that was uh, that was the last time I seeked assistance but as some people suggest other people have been staying off there for a while now I've been working my other gigs too not necessarily at the gym, but I had I still was on the and I'm back to doing that at the gym and i've always i was doing obviously the podcast that was my work, but I wasn't getting paid for it really that much making a little money making a little money more a little more money little increased funds for the podcast now but the during the shutdown that notary thing I did some weddings and Uh, What else did I do? I did weddings and I started getting into notary signing. I did that in, I think, December. I passed my test to do loan signings. And unbeknownst to me, they were talking about when I was getting the certification, what people used to do is that they get asked by title companies or mortgage companies to go in and present loans. And what happened, like what happened to transportation, third-party delivery, and all that stuff? The gig economy started. So now all these loan signing services came about. These title companies or mortgage companies started up these apps where you'd get listed on it and they get a job. And I don't know if they're associated with it, but they they're, they act as the agent and they parse out the jobs to you. So they receive the fee. Some mortgage company or title company say, well, you have uh, 250 275 for this job. Here it is. Now find someone to do it. And they'll take whatever amount of money. They'll say, well let's say it's 250 so they don't have to look for the person and they'll pay top you know they'll pay 250 and say well, you will have a person you will not have to have someone to do that and they'll take maybe 20 30 percent of that fee and keep it themselves and offer the notary signing agent the rest so the price is depressed I didn't I didn't do this job prior to the epidemic. So I don't know what it was like before, but I do understand what they said the industry norms were for the prices they should charge for doing a signing for a refinance, a a buyer's package, a seller's package for real estate. And the prices are often are offering are less than that. And I'm not bitching about it. We'll get to what my point is there. You know, I eventually try to. I play lip service this, So they're not even meeting the, the price point that they suggested. And they always, I think a lot of times they go a little higher, you know, trying to entice you to take the course. It was a couple hundred dollar course. Not that much. but And I got everything back, maybe 500% of what I paid, which is good one of its from because of a, a good job. So, I get called either by a title company or a mortgage company or a realtor tries to figure it out. I don't know how they do it on their end. I know title companies, people that put together the package the uh, the loan package. They they do that. They get, they get a hold of the loan signing agent. So when they ask you to do that, they, I'm not. Once again, I'm not pitching about the job. It's a lot of detail. You got to notarize signatures. You got to check spaces. You got to fill in information, and they're, uh, you, After you're done, you got to check your identification. You got to explain what the paperwork is without giving any suggestion, and there could be upwards of 120, 150 pages in each package. That you got to go through each page and present it to somebody. And it takes a while to do it. You know, you just say, this is an addendum to this. This is a, a HUD document. This is a deed of trust. And all this stuff. And then all it once you, you go call up, make your appointment, go there, check their identification. do Go through the package with someone. And then when you're done... You either take the whole package, you give a package to the copy to the person who's doing who's signing, and you mail the other one. Or you, scan, you, you mail it and scan it back because the mortgage company wants to get it because they're closing. They want the closing document. Sometimes they want to even have you collect payment, a check, that you overnight with everything else. And included on that, they don't send it to you. Obviously, they do e-documents. They got to print it out, so you're responsible for all the printing. Now, for all that, they come up with a price. Now, if you were, de- if I'm dealing with a, a loan company, and it's a local one and stuff like that, they would print out the package, put it together, and you just go and pick it up and go. But now, nowadays, with this. You know, online requests. What they do is they send out bids. You sign up for this list. Let's say notary signers, blah, blah blah blah, and they'll send out a text message to you for a bid on a job. Tell you where it is, when it is, uh, kind of what it what what it is, but they won't tell you how long it is. They'll just tell you if they need to you need to scan things back or not, and they'll tell you a price. Now we're in the Keys. I'd say. Of less uh, about one quarter of the jobs that come in are in within 20 miles where I'm from one quarter at most. The rest are 50 to 100 miles away and when I say 100 miles none of it's on the mainland all of it's in Monroe County and more than half are in Key West which is a no start for me because it's a six hour round trip. And they offer you know, some, some amount of money that's lower than what people suggested you would when you go through your training. I know it's kind of convoluted here. So follow me on this. So I realized that. And I realize I get calls from them. Because sometimes people realize that they can't get someone to do a signing. And they have to call someone ahead of time. And some signings are important, really important, big ones. They want to line up a signer ahead of time. So I get called directly. When I get called directly, that's when I can negotiate. It's hard to negotiate when someone said you a bid in a text message. But in a text message, you just go: you accept or you turn it down. And one of the sites, they go and say they give you all the reasons why do you turn it down. You go, I'm busy, and then they ask you to put a time in where you're not busy. I'll tell you and hey, put it in the next time, or you're saying the price is too low because either it's A very, you know, it's a buyer package. Let's say, and you know, it's going to be close to 100 documents, 100 pages, and they're offering only 100 dollars. And you know, you're going to have to print out 200 pages, and for just printing out 200 pages, I would, you know, I would charge a significant chunk of money. So the way I value my work, I just most of the time I'll just turn it down. Not because I think I'm worth more. It's just you know, driving four or five hours for a certain amount of money just isn't worth it. It's the way you value. It's anybody who does it. It's like a doctor. If they need five thousand dollars to perform a surgery, the doctor themselves, and if someone says, Well, I'm gonna give you a thousand or two thousand. So, well a doctor's much more trained and there's less, you know, there's not as much competition well you're in the keys baby here and there is competition here there's comp the competition here when i say cause competition yeah there may be a lot of people doing what i do but they don't always show up i know that because late when they yesterday i got a bid for a job that came by text and it was 10 after four and the bid for the job was tw- ten miles away and twenty minutes. That was a f- refinance package, and it would be seventy-five pages. And you know, it's a mid—it's upwards of maybe fifty. Um, I mean, could be fifty thousand, could be five hundred thousand. The package I was going to get could be a million dollars. They were offering ninety bucks for you to go and print out. 180 pages, and to go 10 miles in 20 minutes. So it would have probably taken almost 15 minutes to get that and get ready and go. Yeah, there was no way to get there at 4.30 and, you know, rush and accept it. And then do your scan back. So your whole night, you got like two, two, three hours worth of work, and they wanted to give you 20 minutes notice. I don't work for those people, so...
1: I don't worry about
0: it. I just say no. Because they'd have to come up with more cash. It's supply and demand. Now, there's probably people around here that will do the job for that. That's like Uber. Uber does that. Uber has a, what would they call it? Price indexing or surge indexing of their prices. So that Saturday night, Friday night, they have enough drivers. They up the fees that go to the driver. And then up the fares to the people that are riding. Saturday night, 8 o'clock, surge pricing. So you can get as, as many people as possible. makes a lot of sense. So I realized after doing this for about seven months, going into seven months, getting bids, that if you, sometimes you don't respond or you respond no, that when they're really eager, they keep on sending the bid out and upping the price. Especially the short term ones. But I don't jump on them all the time. And added on that, I've had people call me and then they tell me, well, we're going to send you the package. You don't have to print it up. Go and do it. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, great, great, great. I'll do it. Yeah. It's, it's less than five miles away. I'm happy to do it uh, a week from now. Actually, a, a week, well, about six days from now. And what happens? I get an email that says they want a W-9 for me. They want me to send my no no re credentials, fill out this paperwork. It's not that much money, and I've never sent that paperwork out to other people for that. Now, if I was applying for a full-time job with someone with guaranteed work, yes, I'd be expected to submit credentials and background and fill out forms. But when you're giving me one job, and this still sounds like I'm bitching, doesn't it? You're giving me one job with no guarantee of another job. I'm not sending you a bunch of paperwork. You either, And what I'm going to do is contact you and say, listen, I'm not going to send you something. Are we still doing this job or you can find someone else? Because they do, uh, listen, I understand once the th- the, th- the code and the notary is, that once you accept the job, you do the job and you do everything that was requested of you. If it's scanbacks, it's scanbacks. You don't complain about the price. I don't complain about the price. I just don't accept it. Right? I just don't accept the job, so I don't complain about the price. It's easy peasy, Right? Say, yeah, someone says advertising for this job. I'm a construction job and we're going to pay $3 an hour. Well, okay. You can say, oh, that's ridiculous. Blah, 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 blah. They can offer whatever they want. They can offer whatever you want. I am not angry about that. I'm not angry about the situation where they have depressed pricing that they're offering. I just value my work a little more. And I won't accept a job for that. I have people call me up. One, one particular title company, they wanted said, I, I dropped my card off. And the lady said, oh, well, we use someone else. But we are looking for someone for Memorial Day weekend to go down to Deer Key. Now, Deer Key is about 75 miles south of me. And they wanted you to go on Memorial Day weekend. The only yeah, you know, the only time they're not going to offer you any other work except the one work which would be to drive 150 miles on Memorial Day weekend, and then maybe we'll see you again for the same amount of money that they have. They're not offering any more money, so I said no. That's not going to be, I mean, unless there's a guarantee, I'm not going to go and do that job and stuff. Like that. And say, Jim, you're cutting your nose off to spite of your face. No, I'm not, because once. You know, you're you're giving them false hope that you're going to be able to bail them out when the people they have been paying and depending on decided they don't want to work on that holiday, right? So I offer myself a premium, and you should offer yourself as a premium. There's a there's a a value in being ready to do work. There is a value in being able to work. And being there all the time and being consistent and doing the job and being polite and being proficient and filling your obligations. And there's a premium because you're in the keys and it's expensive here. The cost of living is expensive. The time travel is dear. Meaning you get in one accident or anything, especially during a weekend. It takes about four times longer on average, sometimes drastically more, to go any place on the weekend. On a regular weekend, let alone a holiday weekend, it could take me four hours, five hours to get down to Deer Key. That's my whole day. And... They need to do that signing then. That's good. That's the nice thing that you're not working for. That's the one benefit of the gig economy. You can choose to take the job or not take the job. And it really doesn't affect your, your standing. I just assume when I'm going to take the job, it's going to be good pay. And I'm going to do a great job. I won't travel far for a value that I don't see is worthwhile. And say, "Hey Jim, you can deduct the mileage, yeah, but you got to factor that in with the time." So, and it's just like that in the restaurant work. These people haven't come back in. They say that uh, a lot of these places are having a hard time finding anybody. You know, in the service uh, world, You got to take the perspective. And there's our listeners that worked in the service world. Except for people that work in the back of the house. And maybe like a hostess and managers. You're paid a minimum. A minimum wage. Sub-minimum wage. Some places little more than $2.30 an hour. Bartenders paid a little more. Right? But. with that being said you're, you're, you're angry that people aren't taking you up on an opportunity for a tipped employee well that's not up to you what, what are you offering them? Some places have offered them more pain in the ass work to do like well listen besides the other responsibilities you had You're going to be doing all this other side work, sanitizing and stuff like that. And yes, yes, you won't, you'll be getting $2.35 an hour, but you'll get your tips. Yeah. So don't be so fast to complain that service employees aren't running back to work. I, I did come back to work and I realized it's it's harder work now. It is it's harder work but I, I'm close to the owners and they I mean they're having difficulty finding people but and it's not necessarily the restaurant owners offer. It's hard if you're a small mom and pop operation, you're not gonna be breaking new ground by offering more money because your meals are not priced differently. You have a certain amount of profit in there and your your price structures didn't change. And you probably increased the prices of your menu items and you still barely making ends meet. You don't have the extra money to really do that. Now, obviously you could decide, hey, I'm going to tack a dollar surcharge on the, almost every entree. 75 cents for a uh, lunch entree. And that's going to cover my wage. You could do that. Probably. And still do the tipping thing. I mean, that's what it's taking now. We've all seen the stories where people are offering bonuses just to have someone come in and wash their dishes. It's it's not that people are lazy. It may be that they decided at this point that you know what, in order to do the job, or do a good job, I need to get paid this amount of money. Because I need to live. I need to be able to pay my bills when I come home. And I shouldn't have to work two two jobs in order to do that. Your argument may, may be, hey, you should have thought about that when you were going to school and thinking of your vocational track. Well, you know what? If you want someone to do that job, supply and demand goes for them too. And if there's just not people to do it, you're going to have to pay for it. Or figure out a way a robot can do it. Then you got to pay for the robot. And then you got to pay for the person to fix the robot when it breaks down. Yeah, what the fuck? Got to fix the robot. Since we're here at this part of the uh, show, I just want to say um, uniquely, I posted a picture of Taiwan. And the interesting part of Taiwan, this is my connection to Taiwan. My favorite cousins, there was a whole family of my favorite cousins, my cousins, well, all my cousins. Well, they were my older cousins. And Their father, they lived, when I was very young, when I lived in, at a short time, we lived in, uh, on Andrews Air Force Base, north of Washington, D.C. My cousins lived, originally they lived in western Maryland, not too far from, maybe like 20, 30 miles from where uh, that was, but for I was really close to my cousins. I loved hanging out with them. There was eight kids. I think eight kids. I got that right. Eight kids in my cousins' family. My you know, going to like 12 years older than me to or to uh, five years younger. And at one point when I was 7 years old, I think it was around that My cousins got up and left with their their family, and they moved to Taiwan. Yeah, they moved to Taiwan. Yeah, this Anglo family moved to Taiwan. And I just really didn't understand what was going on. I knew my uncle worked for the government. He actually worked for the NSA. And he was a Chinese language expert for the National Security Agency. And back then, for some reason, they had to have them on hand because now I don't understand why a Chinese language expert would have to be in Taiwan when you consider phones were working perfectly fine in the 1970s. It was 71, 72, 73. And if you know anything about American history, Nixon was president and he... He opened up, it was called a Rupoche with the People's Republic of China. And there was a picture in a magazine called Foreign Policy magazine. Yeah, there's a magazine that was called Foreign Policy. But then again, they had a magazine on everything back then. You know, there was no online applications in the early 70s. But on the cover of Foreign Policy magazine, there was Nixon getting off the plane, Air Force One. And behind him was a man in a black wool cap that looked just like my uncle. And where the assumption is, I don't even know where that magazine is anymore today. But uh, I I'm, I'm, imagine I can look for it. I can look for it online. I'm, I'm sure there's, I can get access to it. So they lived in Taiwan for a while and then I was so young. That was in the day nowadays where you go and visit your cousins and things like that. And I think that it just lasted maybe at most a year or two. They lived in Taiwan. And it was just the biggest adventure. I had cousins that lived off the coast of China. I didn't know much about Taiwan, and I didn't know learn uh, other than the mainland was communist and Taiwan wasn't. And then I learned later on that after World War II, the communists and nationalists were fighting the Japanese occupation during World War II. And when that World War II ended, when the Japanese surrendered... The Nationalists and the Communists resumed their civil war, fighting each other. And one side, the Communists was Mao Zedong, and this is all from memory, Mao Zedong, Mao, Mao, Zedong, Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong, and the Nationalist leader was General Generalissimo, I think they called him, even though that's a Spanish Spanish name, General Chiang Kai-shek. And in the early 50s, it could have been 1950, 1951, the nationalists surrendered, or the communists declared victory, and the nationalists um, were, you know, exiled themselves to the island of Taiwan. That was, I think it was traditionally controlled by China, and there was a native population in Taiwan, but the nationalists brought the remaining troops and families to Taiwan where they pretty much I mean, took it over. And they became nationalist China. And for years, there was always two Chinas. There was the People's Republic, which was the mainland, the vast majority of them. And in the Olympics, you'd have both of them. Though they didn't. They didn't compete under, similar fla- under the same flag. And Taiwan would go in there. And for years, China said, you know, we don't want you to recognize it. Nowadays, China threatens that if Taiwan assists on not unifying, and that's the main thing. There was always a stated goal of the, the nationalists, that they eventually they were the true government of China and they were going to go and take it over. And... The People's Republic says the same thing about Taiwan. Now, a small region, I guess that's kind of like the Chinese saying that it's similar to our civil war. But, and the nationalists say, nope, we're wholly, wholly sundered from them. I think that pretty much the nationalists of China realize that they're not going of Taiwan. They're not going to take over the mainland. So they struck up agreements, defense. I don't know if they have treaties, but right now it looks like Japan and the U.S. are the grantors of Taiwan independence, considering that one of the largest powers in the world is right over Across from the Taiwan Straits with a huge, you know, the, the People's Republic, the Army of the People's Republic, and the, the Navy and the Air Force over the tiny island nation of Taiwan, which is advanced the economy. And that happens to listen to the podcast. And we come back to it. I do appreciate them. It's interesting. It's interesting stories. And I know. That you know, you got to have you get it's bad enough that you got to worry about here we are in the United States worrying about our jobs and how much we're getting paid and how much health care is, and here you are, Taiwan. Yeah, we worry about those things about being paid, about infrastructure, and all these things, but we also have to worry about this huge, huge country. That is threatening us. Right next door. And it's threatening to evade and take us over. Because they can see. How Hong Kong. Which supposedly. When the agreement. When the British gave Hong Kong back to China. Which. You know the Chinese would say. Well listen it wasn't theirs to give back. But we chose to do it peacefully. But the People's Republic of China agreed, in order to ease that, that would be two systems, one country. Well, now it's going to be one system, one country. They're having the, the democracy protest in Hong Kong. Taiwan can look at it and say, listen, we don't have a choice because they don't, no matter what agreement we go with, China can decide whatever it wants. You know, they could decide, restrict uh, freedom of the press, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, all that stuff. Because they're, they're doing it in Hong Kong right now. They just closed one of the largest papers there. This largest independent paper in Hong Kong. So, Taiwan sees and says, well listen, this agreement was between Hong Kong and China. That they would have a special status. That is being shit-canned. You understand that. But, you know, you can't tell people how to live, right? And, I mean, I can't tell the people at Taiwan I wouldn't stand for it. Or Taiwan can't expect, you know, I mean, you're. what are you going to do? They say, listen, we're going to invade you and destroy, we can destroy the country and go to war. You may be able to fight us off, but when it's done... you know, you're gonna, there's going to be some consequences. There's nothing good about it. Or you can say, listen, we're willing to die. Right? Just like the Israelis been doing for the longest time. They say, listen, we're not going anywhere. You could try to invade us. But I think the power, asymmetric power balance in the Middle East is not the same as it is in the Far East. So China is a lot more nimble and powerful than the Arabs that are facing the Israelis. Even though the power, the the differences in size of the countries may be similar, the countries around it. But I think I talked about that. I do appreciate Taiwan taking out the time to listen to us. I don't know if it's an Americans over there or English speakers over there listen to it. I do thank you. I mean, we do have similar... We are on an island too. It's a coral island. We're separated from the mainland. But fortunately, we have a congenial, a mostly congenial relationship with the mainland. Of Florida, and the people aren't that much different, and the government systems aren't. Oh, you know, well, yeah, they are. We we have a different way of doing things in the Keys than they do on the Florida mainland, and we do have a different government that sometimes may be responsive to our needs, sometimes maybe not. But in no way is it anywhere like the animosity you have in Taiwan. And I do appreciate you for listening. And if you are listening please, and you like the show, please share the show with your friends and family. Uh, If you like it also, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have any questions, send them to Jim at KeysBartender.com. Thank you for listening and have a great day. I just picked up my remote control from my television, so that's not going to work. Let's play these tunes to get yelling out of here. Talk to you later. Bye.